1: From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanorkas and this is the Autosport Podcast. Previously, we've discussed the top 10 drivers from a particular F1 squad, but today we're looking at the best drivers from a particular nation. With Formula 1 set to rock up for its latest new race in the USA in Miami next week, we're assessing who might be considered the 10 best American F1 racers. Before we dive into our top 10 ranking, let's once again ask the person whose constant list writing is the inspiration for this series to go over how he puts these rankings together. Now, I say that every time, and that is because he's constantly writing lists it's Autosport's chief editor Kevin Turner. Uh, Kev, given this is a different type of top ten, though, was it different to put together?
2: Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, the criteria of obviously is, is pretty similar. What the drivers achieved in Formula One—that's kind one of the basic start point. But this is quite tricky because, uh, and we'll, we'll probably get onto this uh, as we go along. But there, there aren't actually that many candidates for a, for a top ten. American F1 drivers list. Obviously, it's got a very strong domestic scene, IndyCar, NASCAR, etc. So actually, there are relatively few American drivers that have really made a big impact in F1. So I found the first part of the list a lot easier than the second half, which I suspect our other guest, uh, will
1: will be pointing out as we go along absolutely well we, we better introduce him because as ever before we get stuck into kev's uh, ranking of the top 10 usf1 drivers uh, we have of course arranged uh, for a second guest whose job it will be to examine kev's 10 choices suggest either alternative drivers who could have made the list or indeed a different order to the ranking that is unless they're in total agreement i think that's quite unlikely though let's face it uh, but to do that we have arranged a very special guest for this episode and we're very pleased to welcome back to the autosport podcast one of britain's leading motorsport commentators ian titchmarsh how are you ian
3: I'm pretty good, Alex. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm um, looking forward to this interesting debate because Kevin's lists always leave you somewhere interesting, I think.
1: They absolutely do. They absolutely do. But just a quick reminder uh, for the listeners for how we're going to go through each entry. Uh, I'll introduce them. Kev, you're going to explain which driver is in which slot. And why? And Ian, you're going to examine Kev's uh, reasoning and logic, if there is any, of course. Uh, And then we'll have plenty of time as we go through them to suggest uh, any drivers didn't quite make the cut, any who should be in different places, what you guys think. Um, I think, frankly, we should get uh, stuck in at number 10. And at number 10, it's Danny Sullivan, the 1985 Indy 500 winner and 1988 kart champion who made 15 Formula One starts in 1983 for the Tyrrell team with the best finish of fifth at the Monaco Grand Prix. So, Kev, why is Sullivan at number 10?
2: Well, as we've discussed before, number ten is always one of the hardest ones because uh, you know it's who you leave out—that that classic uh, classic debate—and you know the the people towards the back end of this list have really got quite minimal uh, F one you know careers, if you like. So yes, Danny Sullivan was there for just the one season, did the did the fifteen races, best finish of fifth, as you say, in the world championship, um, and he was outperformed by Michele Alboreto at, at Tyrrell. It's it's fair to say he's in there really as a kind of a, he did a solid job plus there was the uh the final non-championship F1 race uh, as it stands at the moment um which is the Brands Hatch race of champions in 1983 which um uh is available to look at actually I watched it the other day and it is quite an entertaining race given it's effectively half a half an F1 field it's it's quite exciting the last few laps is is, is Sullivan climbing all over the back of of Keke Rosberg's Williams with a very visibly uh, blistered, not terrible condition uh, rear tyre uh, and they put on quite an entertaining tussle at the end. So... Um yeah, he he kind of he kind of sneaks in ahead of a couple of the other candidates. None of them particularly strong in terms of what they did in F one. Obviously, we're we're excluding what, what the fact that he won the Indy five hundred and, and and a cart championship for this list. This isn't a top American racing driver. It's specifically what they did in F one. So um, yeah, did him in at ten. But I know Ian has got a couple of other candidates that we could perhaps move on debate. So I'll throw to Ian to uh, put his two forward, and, and yeah, then we can argue well, on those.
3: There's, yeah, th- there's. Um... One of them uh, I've got is George Fulmer, who also did a full season and scored points in his first two races in Formula 1. But then you can make a point about the the particular circumstances in which he scored those points, but nonetheless, to finish third in his first Grand Prix is pretty good going. Uh, And so, for somebody in his late 30s, as he was, I mean, he was a sort of Fangio age when he uh, came to Formula 1. And uh, whilst we're debating whether it should be danny sullivan i'm saying well danny is one of a number of drivers who you might put in there along with i mean to, do i put the names before us now or or come back to them later on i think so and i think
1: scenes so, are see, at the, the number ten. 10 spot yeah let's 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 well, go in who well, else there's, there's, there's
3: michael andretti uh who, who's another one there's bob bondurant carol shelby bobby ray hall I don't think you can make much of a case for Scott Speed, so we'll we'll move on. No, shake of the head. Um, but the others, uh, y- you can make a case for. Um, none of them had a particularly lengthy career in Formula One. Um, Carol Shelby was in and out and had some decent races. Um, Michael Andretti ha- had a raw deal. Uh, but ignoring what they did in other categories, of course, makes it difficult. With Michael Andretti, because, of course, he was a superstar in indie racing, um, but really didn't shine for various reasons, some of which you can attribute to his uh, approach to it all. Um, But he he undoubtedly was a, a, a very talented driver, both on road circuits in the States and on ovals.
2: Yeah I think um, of all that list um, that you've mentioned I mean Michael Andres is he's probably a podcaster and his own right isn't he I think given the expectation and experience that you'd have had coming into his F1 career it's incredibly disappointing yes. He was of course utterly blown blown away by his teammate but bearing in mind that his teammate was at in center probably at the peak of his powers at the time, would perhaps not hold that completely against him. But there were, for me, there were too many crashes and didn't commit fully to it. And it was quite an interesting story there. Um, I I think the strongest uh, suggestion from from Ian's list is probably Fulmer. I think there's there's a very similar, the kind of very, you know, one season they did pretty pretty solid job i think it's kind of circumstantial that in a way that that fulmer got the podiums and 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 sullivan didn't but i i think either one of them for me could be a could be a you know position in that in that 10th spot i don't know if you have a if you have a preference alex from those uh from those discussions i think it could, could be
1: either of those two really no i think i think i'd defer to your to your pick at number 10 of sullivan kev
3: and where do we put Carroll Shelby? I mean, you can't ignore him. I mean, I know you associate him with Cobras and, and sports car racing and winning Le Mans, and all that, but he was a pretty reasonable Formula One driver as well.
2: Yeah, it was. Re- he was reasonable, but he wasn't as good as Roy Salvadori, who didn't win a World Championship Grand Prix. Uh, so, I mean, that that's that's unfortunate for Salvadori. He'd probably be one of those people that should have done, given other things that he won. Um, but, yeah, I find, I find Shelby as an F1 driver far less convincing than I do Shelby as a as a motorsport figure, if that makes sense.
3: Uh, well, yeah, of course, it, because he, he is a, a very uh, high-profile motorsport figure. Uh, and that may detract to some extent from what he did in Formula 1. I mean, he didn't set the world on fire in Formula 1, but he was a pretty good driver in, in, two, in the 250F Maserati. I don't mean so much the Aston Martin, because that wasn't really a successful car. By any stretch of the imagination, even Kevin might admit that as an Aston Martin. Uh, enthusiast. Oh, there's a
2: podcast in the, that we, we could do a podcast on the last front-engine Grand Prix cars, the DBR4, the Scarab, the Tecmec, all those cars. The Ferguson. Uh, the Ferguson. Well, that's more... Assist, we've got off track already. This is terrible. We've gone from Danny <laughs> Sullivan to the four-wheel-drive Ferguson. Excellent work. <laughs>
3: Well, okay. So, so Alex, Alex, as chair, is going to say uh, Danny Sullivan. I mean, I, it's nothing against Danny, but to me, he's the Formula Three driver in, in Europe. In Europe, I mean, I, I acknowledge that he did rather well in the States.
1: Well, Kev, I guess my only question is, how close was former to making the the cut, as it were?
2: i pretty pretty close, really. I think I think that, that actually, this discussion shows. Um, you know, we're we're talking about drivers who either dipped in and out or did one season, none of them really stamped their authority on Formula One or they were much more successful elsewhere. I mean, yeah, you know, with with Former of course he was a you know winner in Trans Am and Can Am, you know, very well respected in you know in North America. Um and obviously Danny Sullivan as well. So yeah, I think we're we're showing here that these are the Americans who kind of dipped in and out. It wasn't the main Talking about any of these drives, you wouldn't go. Oh, yes, I'll recall their Formula One careers as the first thing you think about them.
3: What What George Formby also had to contend with was his teammate, of course, who is still around and with us and could be asked questions.
2: Jackie Oliver at Shadow,
3: indeed. Yes, I, I don't think they saw eye to eye. Is the impression I get from Pete Lyons's book.
2: Yeah, I think, and probably Fulmer should have had another season as well, shouldn't he? Probably, yes, you indeed. Know, he deserved yeah. more time, which is, which is something that we'll come on to. I mean, Sullivan had the opportunity, I think, to carry on, but probably with hindsight, quite sensibly went, I think I'm probably better off. Going to the states and forging an IndyCar career, than sort of slogging away in Formula One. So, and that's oh, gonna, that's it, yeah. that, that's come up a few times with American driver. Well, even now, you know, we want an American driver in F one, don't we? Um, but why would someone like Joseph Newgarden leave? Uh, you know, America's greatest team in Penske mm. to take a shot at probably a midfield team in Formula you just wouldn't Colton Herter possibly um, he's young enough to, to give it a try and, and then go back to IndyCar if it doesn't work out but um, yeah it's it's been too long really since we had a, an American drive in F1.
3: First before we move on because he's not going to get further into the top 10 and the 10th uh, what about Bobby Rahal I know he did hardly any Formula 1 races and therefore it's possibly almost impossible to properly assess him but he was a what he did was very good, and he was good in in European racing, and of course, very good in IndyCar racing.
2: Yeah, big big fan of uh, of Bobby Rahal. Uh, and just as a little uh, aside, he got in touch with us recently because Al Unser Jr. did a my favorite teammate picked Bobby, and he was so touched he got in he he got in touch oh. with us to get which was rather nice. So, right. um so yeah, no, we yeah we are fans of of Bobby Rahal. know um, yeah, nice guy, obviously very good driver. Yeah, for me, it just wasn't an, wasn't enough in F one. I'm sure had he. Uh, had he stuck in F1 and, and carved a career, I think he was obviously good enough well, to make an impact. So, well, you know why he say-
3: didn't stay in Formula One, don't you? James Hunt.
2: To Tell us more.
3: Because when James, well, he drove for Wolf, And when James Hunt was leaving McLaren for his final half season in Formula One, not thinking at the time he started that season, he was going to be just in for half a season. He insisted on having a single car team. Uh, and Bobby Rahal would have carried on because Johnny Schechter had gone to Ferrari, to, uh, Ferrari was uh, thinking of carrying on uh, if he could, but there was no place for him in a one-car team. It was going to have to be. Otherwise, he would have been the other Wolf driver. Uh, and it was it was James Hunt. Not uh, nothing against Bobby Rahal. It's just that James wanted a team that was all around, him, and as well as he walked out of the team halfway through the year.
1: Well, shall we move on to number 9 on Kev's list? I think you've had a good debate there. It's always it's always handy at the number 10 spot to discuss who might have actually else might have actually taken that slot so it's good to get uh, to get all the other potential options that could have made the list in for that particular entry but yes let's move on to number nine and it's Mark Donoghue who started 15 Formula 1 races between 1971 and 1975 and just for the avoidance of doubt for the listeners when we say started 15 Formula 1 races we mean the world championship since 1950 and there is a driver on this list who would have raced when that world championship was uh, run to Formula 2 regulations uh, but anyway back to Donoghue uh, raced for the Penske squad uh, before he was tragically killed at the 1975 Austrian Grand Prix it's a best finish of third at the nineteen seventy one Canadian Grand Prix. Kev, why is Donohue at number nine?
2: Uh, well, I'm a huge Donahue fan, uh, but that's not why he's in the list because that would be that wouldn't be uh, as objective uh, as we want to be. But he's there largely on that on that podium wet race. Uh, Ronnie Peterson, Jackie Stewart cleared off, um, but uh, Donoghue you know ended up finishing third in a very smart looking McLaren. Actually, I think the, the Penske Sunoco mm. livery on that car looks rather nice. Um, so. He's there. On, he's there for that base on that basis. Really, uh, his comments actually in his book, um, uh, "The Unfair Advantage," which I recommend people read, are quite interesting about the F1 drivers. He wasn't overawed by the situation at all, um, and he uh, yeah probably made it look easier than it was that he came in and got that result because obviously when he came back out of retirement uh, to run Pensky's own car, the PC1, and then the March seven five one neither of which were particularly cutting edge f1 cars i think it's fair to say it was much more of a struggle and he didn't really you know yeah you know, he did he did struggle to get his head round it and get the results he did get into the points um so for me he did kind of he did sort of Manage a bit more than 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 Sullivan, and of course he was he was yeah it was a one car team he was effectively having to lead development and all the rest of it. So he was he was intrinsically part of trying to drive that forward. Um, and unfortunately, of course, they hadn't had their their breakthrough before he was killed. So his results are are middling. F one is definitely the weakest part of his CV. But I thought on the basis of the podium and leading the Pensky. Yeah, it's cool having Penske in F1 as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's quite a big impact having America's greatest team in uh, you know, in Formula 1. Um so that's why he that's why he made it on the list. Ian,
1: what do you think of Donahue being at number 1? Uh, well,
3: nine? well I, I had him 10th. Uh, I I should say just to avoid confusion. I did my 10 before looking at Kevin's. So th- this, this is not one that's s- setting out to simply be controversial. Um it, it, this is my view. Uh, oh, so Matt,
1: I, you I, top 10. Lot say one. It's not a Matt Q top 10 who just no. disagrees with Kev for the sake of it, which is always rather amusing.
3: Oh, uh, right. Um, no, uh, so I got George Fulmer ninth and I've got Mark Donoghue tenth. Um, to me, he's a marginal Formula One driver, like the others. Kevin Long acknowledged acknowledge that. Um, he had that third place, but as we've already covered, George Fulmer had a third place as well. Uh, and although Donoghue was a standout driver obviously in can-am racing uh he he just didn't make much of an impact in formula one he made no more impact in formula one sadly than his accident um than michael andretti almost you know he he was just um another formula one driver making up the numbers which is terribly patronizing thing to say but if we're assessing people for the purpose of a debate um that's as I say, I had him tenth, but I could equally be happy with Bobby Ray Hall tenth or Danny Sullivan tenth or whatever. Um I don't think he is above George Fulmer.
1: Well, let's move on to the number eight slot on Kev's list. It's Harry Schell, who entered 56 World Championship races between 1950 and 1960. And that is the year in which he was sadly killed in practice for the Silverstone International Trophy. Schell's best finish was second, which he scored at the 1958 Dutch Grand Prix. Kev, why is Schell at number eight?
2: So I think we're moving now into the drivers that that were around F1 longer and 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 you know would be regarded as F1 drivers if if that makes sense. Oh, I think. absolutely. So yeah. yeah, So we, I think, we're, we're, there's a gap, if you like, between. Uh, eight and the people that we've talked about already purely on pure on impact and longevity um yeah i think yeah shell was a i don't think he was ever a top liner um i've just read the the excellent van wall book the uh the the the, the one that dog nye has added to, to um dennis jenkinson's work and uh it's it's quite clear from that that he's he's popular good to work with nice guy solid performer. But he's not a Sterling Moss or a Tony Brooks or a Stuart Lewis Evans. It's it's you know, he's in that kind of second rank of drivers, good guy to have in the team, but he's not going to go out and win you win you races. Um and you yeah, and he didn't. So he was yeah, he was a perfectly solid solid Grand Prix driver, but I don't think he was I don't think he was sort of outstanding. Um but he was he was around for a while, he was you know, he, d- he did a good job, he didn't tend to you know, he didn't tend to have too much drama. Um so you know, a, a basically a, a good F one driver.
3: No, I've never been quite sure what the word journeyman means, but I think he might fit into that category. Um, He he was around for years. He was, as you've already said, uh, a a very popular character. Uh, He was an entertaining person, a larger-than-life character. He certainly was. Um, He was as much French as he was American, although he was American by by, um, birth, but he he spent most of his life in France. Um, uh, And he, he was, on his day... I mean, if you think about what he did with the Van Wall in 1956, this is before Sterling Moss started racing them regularly. I know Moss won the International Trophy, but um, Harry Schell led at, at Trans. He, he led other Formula One races. He won non-championship Formula One races in the first version of the Van Wall. Um, perhaps we're not taking too much uh, account of the non-championship races, but he, he, he was uh, part of the momentum that got Van, well, Van Wall going. Um and yes, Sterling Moss obviously was a very important part from 57 onwards and the 56th International Trophy. But um, but that all said, um, I, I don't think Harry Schell should be understated. I, mean, I, I put him seventh uh, rather than eighth. Um, I think he was much more valuable um, as a Formula One contributor, as a driver, than the guy we're coming on to, I think, looking at the list. Oh, no, yeah. Um, next but one up the list. Um in kevin's list uh so i i i've have, have, being old enough to have seen him race and enjoy watching him race um if i saw him at his, his um at Alton park a few weeks before he was killed um he, he was a, a a very very good driver uh but will never be given the ultimate credit because he never actually won a, a, a grand prix he did win formula one races though
1: well, let's move on to number seven on Kev's list, Ian, and then we'll come back and see where uh, you would have had this next driver on your list, if that makes sense. Yeah, so at number yeah. seven on Kev's list, it's Maston Gregory, a winner at Le Mans in 1965 alongside Jochen Rint. He started 38 World Championship Formula 1 races between 1957 and 1965, scoring a best finish of second at the 1959 Portuguese Grand Prix. Kev, why have you got Gregory at seven?
2: Um, so, uh, I, I found Gregory and Shell quite difficult to, to separate, have them together. I, I felt I put Gregory ahead because I think he probably had a little bit, just that little bit more something, that little bit more, uh, pace, if you like. And I noticed that Ian has them in, in the same order in his <laughs> list, but there's someone else that we'll get to next who, who, uh, who's, who's the reason that they're in, they're in different slots in the top 10. But yeah, so I had him just ahead. Um, I thought he just did that that little bit more, might have achieved more had he not had accidents in sports cars. He's, you know, he, Gregory, famously stands up and jumps out of cars uh, when they're when they're having accidents. Um, I don't know if Ian has saw any of those incidents, but uh, it sounds quite dramatic. But that did actually mean that he missed certain F one races where um, which 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 might have improved his record a bit. But yeah, he got an extra podium compared to Shell from fewer races um and uh yeah so he just sort of edged ahead for me another another guy that's probably not quite top rank better in sports cars i mean he was uh fantastic in the um you know the lister against uh archie scott brown um in the works car so um uh, yeah a, a really strong driver just edged ahead of shell for me
3: well they're very very sim well similar in terms of the qualities they have that they bring to the party although they're different qualities in certain respects um, and yeah I, I've got and Gregory sixth in my list uh, one more than you have Kevin um, he, he had his season, he had, going back to your sports car references, um, he had his chance with the Formula One Cooper team in 1959 uh, with the best result of second place uh, and in the, what was a Portuguese Grand Prix um, and, and had he not then crashed the, uh, or the car crash itself at Goodwood, um, which put him out of racing for the rest of the season, he would have been driving instead of Bruce McLaren in the American Grand Prix at Sebring. And Bruce McLaren, therefore, wouldn't have won the American Grand Prix. Um, but that's a what-it. Do you uh, think
2: Gregory would have done?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, having seen, I remember the HG200 in 1959, um... He, he just splits the field to begin with i was sort of standing up just after the start finish line um watching that race uh, and he was in a, a, a class of his own uh, which included sterling Moss in the once raced only cooper BR- uh cooper brm um but uh yeah on his day he was he was a superb driver first, i remember seeing the first first time i saw him was at ulta park a big sports car race in the ferrari And he was, even my father was impressed. It was a a mighty impressive performance. Um, His one disadvantage, I think, was he had these occasional rushes of blood. I mean, he was quicker than Archie Scott Brown in the list of Jaguar, um, but he he crashed. Well, Archie Scott Brown sadly ultimately crashed. We shouldn't be considering sports cars perhaps too much. Um, He was third in his first Grand Prix at Monaco. He was the first American to finish on the in a podium position um, in the World Championship Grand Prix. Um, so for all those sorts of reasons, he should be higher up the list than you have him, Kevin, um, because we're coming to the reason why he is one place down from where I've got him. In a moment, let's
1: go to number six on Kev's list and explains why the sort of uh, the everything slightly out of out of kilter with Ian's list uh, on Kev's list. Number six, it's Eddie Cheever who started 132 races between 1978 and 1989, scored nine podiums, with a best finish of second at the 1982 Detroit Grand Prix for Ligier and the 1983 Canadian Grand Prix for Renault. So, Kev, why have you got Cheever at number six? I think
2: this will probably come down to. Uh, weighting of criteria really um i found Shiva quite a tricky one i mean he's got more formula one starts than any other american driver uh and i think that has that has to count for something you know the long the longevity factor um i mean not if you're just tooling around at the back all the time but i think he was yeah he was better than that um scored scored nine podiums as you say i mean ultimately he wasn't as good uh as his his teammates in a couple of key areas. I mean, he was was blown away by Alain Prost at at Renault. Perhaps not really a surprise, given you're talking about one of the benchmark drivers of the era. Uh, And he compared initially quite well um, to Derek Warwick when they were teammates. I spoke to Derek about Eddie, um, which was very interesting. And uh, as time went by, Eddie fell further and further away from from. Derek, uh, and and I would suggest uh, Derek Warwick is one of the one of the great drivers who should have won a Grand Prix. One of the best drivers that didn't win a World Championship Grand Prix. Um, uh, and, and say on his day, Eddie was Eddie was as good, but he got he, he fell away. Um, and I think there's maybe a question about his focus. He was a bit inconsistent. Yeah, he looked quite good at Ligier, looked terrible at Renault, looked okay at times at Arrows, and then not. So he is inconsistent um but I, I felt from longevity and nine podiums you yeah he was a he was a part a consistent part of formula 1 during the 80s uh, and that's why i had him ahead of of gregory and shell which is the difference between my list and Ian's, um even though i'm not was he better than them as a driver i think he was probably better than shell i'm not sure whether he was better than gregory um i do think
3: point. you're underrating harry shell really when you say that so I, I i i um for me, Eddie Cheever was promise unfulfilled. He should have been, He should have done better than he did, given the years of opportunities that he had. I think longevity counts against him, in fact, because <laughs> with all the opportunities, he, he's a kind of Andrea Di, American version of Andrea de Cesaris um, in, in getting uh, loads and loads of, of, of good drives. Some were better than others, I accept, but nonetheless good drives uh, after the initial was the acela he drove first. Um, but it, that, the promise was never really fulfilled. Uh, uh and in the case of, of yeah, you know, uh, there are tangible achievements you can talk about with harry shell like i said about the, the, the impetus he gave to van wall when he joined the team uh and he was a, a sort of leader any achiever seemed to me as i say promise unfulfilled uh, and i just can't see him uh even in the same league struggling to stay on the coattails of harry shell and master gregory
1: well, let's move on uh, to actually the next two entries on Kev's list. We're going to group them together. I'll introduce them together and then you can have a, a debate about which order they go in. So on Kev's list at number five, it's Peter Revson, the first Formula One race winner on this list, who competed in 30 races between 1964 and 1974, winning the 1973 races in Britain and Canada for McLaren. Revson was sadly killed in a testing crash before the South African Grand Prix in 1974. And then coming on to Kev's number four pick, it's Richie Ginther, a one time Formula One race winner uh, for Honda right at the end of the 1965 season and he also started 52 World Championship races between 1960 and 1967. Kev, why have you got Revson and Ginther at four and five and why in that order?
2: Yeah, so we put them together because I think this will be one of those points of of contention, so we thought we might as well, we might as well talk about them at the same time. So, uh, Revson, uh, I think he... Ian was talking about sort of a potential unfulfilled. I think that that could apply to Revson but for a different reason in that obviously he was killed really as he was getting going, if you like. You know, he won his first, uh, you know, taking his first two World Championship Grand Prix wins in 1973 and then was killed early in 74. So I don't think we got to see the end of his, his F1 story, if you like. So in terms of potential, I think you could have him higher up on this list. Um, although I would say, and this, this is perhaps another point of, of, of debate. I think the McLaren M23 massively flatters Revson and Denny Holme in 1973. I think if you look at the Lotus and Tyrrell lineups, you know, you've got Emerson Vittipaldi and Ronnie Peterson at Lotus, Jackie Stewart. I would argue at the peak of his powers and Francois Sever at Tyrrell. And I think either one of those pairings is quite considerably better than a revson home lineup. Denny Holm didn't have a pole position in his entire World Championship career, except for with the M23 when it was new. Yeah, I think it was an absolute rocket ship and someone like a Peterson or a Stewart would have demolished the field in 73 with that McLaren. So the fact that Revson won two races in it is kind of good. You've got to get the job done. And I think his British Grand Prix drive was strong. Canada was a bit more of a bizarre which lap chart are we checking? Let's get everyone's lap charts together because of a safety car chaos. So one of those crazy races, but he didn't fall off. So fair enough. Um, So, yeah. So whereas for me, Ginther, he's, he, maybe he's not as outright fast, but he's very good at bringing the car home at a time when that's more of a thing than it is today. Um, You know, he was signed by Ferrari as a sort of a test and development driver, did a good job there, did a lot of the mileage with the shark nose. Now that car I'm sure would have been quick anyway. Um, you know and he did he did solid jobs at Ferrari, they won the constructors championship when he was there. Then he went to BRM and again, of course, he was a number two. For me, he's a he's a good number two, you know, uh, on this on this list. Um and but he, he has a full F one career. Um incredible finishing record. I think even he admitted that perhaps there were times where he he didn't push as hard as he should or could have done because he was so concerned with the mechanical sympathy. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad trait in a number two driver. Um uh, and of course then he also got his win win with Honda which was very much his project he was involved in pushing it along um, you know, he was technically astute so I, I, I imagine Ian's argument would be that Revson was a, a quicker driver than Ginther which I wouldn't disagree with but I think in terms of what they achieved in F1 uh, Ginther, Ginther had more because Revson's story was cut short
3: Right well uh, we've got to introduce into this as well uh, Phil Hill um, because I, I have got um, Peter Revson third, Phil Hill fourth, and Richie Ginther fifth. Talk about Revson first. He he had two stabs at the Formula One career. He had the first as a sort of independent coming out. He was a very very fast Formula Junior driver. He, he, he was one of the best oh, that's like- why
2: you like him so much. In yeah, which well, is partly. <laughs> I, I
3: I knew him so okay. So so having, having got to know him in his Formula Junior days, um, he, he he was outstandingly fast um and running as a privateer he didn't although from an extremely wealthy background he didn't use his money to progress his career he was able to live on his um family's wealth but but he didn't live an extravagant life he was focused on becoming a, a formula one driver um he had a go in 1963 64 uh he drove that lotus 24 with a lola body on it in 64 from tim parnell's team um and never really got anywhere he, i think he had a Fourth or fifth in a non-championship race. He then went off and did mighty things at in Indianapolis. I mean, he really was uh, one of the top drivers in Indianapolis. Um, all right, we can't take too much account of, of that. But it's an indication, uh, In my contention is, of just how good he, he was capable of being. And when he got into Formula One, yeah, well, I, I know Denny Hahn isn't your most favourite driver, Kevin, but um, he, he was as quick as, if not quicker than Denny. That day at Silverstone, yeah, again, I was, I was there, saw it all. He beat Ronnie Peterson, Jackie Stewart, having an off day, literally, as well as um, uh, he, he started well, but then went off into the crops. Revson was just seriously good, certainly as good as Phil Hill. Um, the, the, the point in favour of Phil, as we will come to, is that he won the World Championship. Um, but Richie Ginther, not in the same league as either of them, actually.
2: I think if you were doing a list of like, American drivers, I absolutely would have uh, Revson ahead of ahead, certainly Ginther. Um, but yeah, if, if you're if you're taking F1 as a snapshot, I just don't think that it it sort of are they unravelled enough yet? We've not not seen seen quite. Like, yeah, I w- I'd like to see what he'd have done in seventy outside of a McLaren M23, really, and see how his career would have gone from there. And obviously, within to conjecture as to how good we we think he'd have been. As people like, you know, Nicky Lauda came to the fore. He,
3: he, he, what was so what, one of the things I found so impressive about him was the way he bounced back from um, a, a, a rather low level Formula One first season, 1964. Went off and he won. He won Canam. He won Indianapolis. Uh, sorry, he came second in Indianapolis. He, he was on pole position in Indianapolis. Um, he he was in- incredibly quick, much quicker than Phil Hill. Phil Hill was an extremely good sports car driver, as we'll come to shortly. But but Peter Evans was better than Phil Hill, in my view, certainly better than Richie Ginther, and deserves to be third.
2: Well, I will agree that he's better, but I think in an F1 list, he shouldn't be ahead of them. That's, what, <laughs> so that, that's the point we've got to. Yeah. What I find interesting about this is that I thought I was being a bit bold, uh, putting Phil Hill only third as the first American uh, world champion. I thought that was a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a punt but actually I'm quite are quite pleased to see him put him
1: put him forth well shall Schle- I a, a compromise maybe just bowing as well to the cold statistics of two victories versus one we put Revson at four Ginther at five keep Phil Hill at three because he's the world champion, as as, as you've said,
3: uh, we haven't quite finished on Phil Hill, though, have no. we?
1: No, really? yeah, we should we <laughs> should come to him now. I'll tell you what, shall, I, shall I introduce him? Uh, as as you've said, the first of two American Formula One world champions uh, on on both of these lists, um, particularly Kevs, um, winning the 1961 world title for Ferrari. In total, Hill started 49 World Championship races between 1958 and 1966, taking 16 podiums and six poles, in addition to three victories, all of which he scored for Ferrari. So, Ian. Would you like to speak about Phil Hill first?
3: Well, well I was going to allow Kevin to speak first because uh, we've done that with the previous... Uh, now, I will have something to say about Phil Hill, yes.
1: OK, keep going. Let's, let's see why you've got it with number three.
2: Well, he's, as I say, I thought that people would assume that he'd be at two, so having have Ian at four, uh, and I'll put him three. So I'm, I'm going to go for about the right right slot. Um, but yeah, so he won the World Championship. Obviously, that's the, that's the big thing in his favour, as Ian, as Ian mentioned before. I mean, I do think that it's one of those... Times where, yeah, the car he had was massively superior to everything else. We know the best drive in 1961 was Sterling Moss by an absolute mile, really. Um, but, yeah, he did win the World Championship. It was sort of nipping top between him and Wolfgang von Trips. but it wasn't Phil that moved over at Jim Clark on the run down to, to Parabolica and and un- obviously had a very unfortunate uh, accident uh, that killed him and some, some spectators. He won the race uh, and the championship um, and... Uh yeah he'd had a lot of polls that year he was i think quicker in I, I know qualifying wasn't the same then as it as is it is now it wasn't quite so critical but he had a lot of polls so i think of the ferrari drivers i can kind of live with him winning the world championship that year even though as i say i don't think he was um yeah he he, he was the best driver that season um but he was highly respected by his by his peers he was a better sports car driver than f1 driver i would agree with you on that um he helped Mike Hawthorne win the championship in when he was running ahead at the season finale, got out of the way and let, uh, let Mike through when again, Moss was winning that race by miles. Yeah, um, exactly. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think he was, he was a good F1 driver and he did win the world championship. Uh, he also, of course, helped bring some of the other drivers in. I know he was, he was instrumental in, yeah, in, in helping Ginther come over as well. Um, now, how much you want to factor that kind of impact in? That's perhaps a wider discussion. But, um, yeah, he, he's quite a, even though his F1 career fell away massively after he won the World Championship, he had a few podiums with the with Ferrari in 62 and then also got caught up with the whole, you know, Ferrari falling away, lots of problems at Ferrari, ATS, and the, his F1 career kind of fell away to nothing after that, uh, although he did carry on in sports cars. So, yeah, that's why, he's at, that's why he's at number three, really. He's a world champion, but for me, he's not as good as the, uh, you know, not not on the same level as the two people ahead of him on the list.
3: Yeah, I mean, to start at the end with Phil Hill, um, yeah, I saw his last race, the, the BOAC 500 race in the Chaparral. Uh, when he, he, he wasn't as quick as Mike Spence, but he was quick. Um, he was coming towards the end of his career. That was his last ever race. But just, he never inspired Phil Hill. He, he, even in sports cars, when he, when he came and raced in the UK, he wasn't as... Um, exciting the driver, as Maston Gregory, let's say. Um, the fact that he helped people to come across from the States uh, is as extraneous as non-Championship Formula One races that they've driven in. I think we, we've got to concentrate on World Championship races. We can't take into account the fact that he brought Richie Ginthry over. Um, Ferrari, I, I, I had a quick look in, in uh, uh, Piloti K. Genti, the uh, Enzo Ferrari book, about his comments which is a very interesting book because he comments on all the drivers that um go, went drew for ferrari over the years um and he rates phil hill as a very good driver but not really in single seaters um he sees him as somebody who was much happier in uh first of all uh fast circuits so he went well at spa for example um but but he wasn't terribly good around Monaco yes he chased Bruce McLaren down in the 1962 Monaco Grand Prix but he was never going to overtake him um, he, he was he had an advantage of car on the fast circuits um, in 1960 he was no quicker than Von Tripps Von Tripps was a very good driver as well but they were much of a muchness I just can't persuade myself that there is enough in Formula 1 terms to say in favour of Phil Hill that puts him above Peter Revson so i, I just think he should be um below Revson.
2: I just think that get, getting the job done in a championship fight has to count for something, whatever the you know, whatever the circumstances uh, well, really. And I just don't think that you know Revson they're just, there's just not enough there to warrant even though I completely accept he would be quicker if you put him in the same car, i I absolutely agree with you but, that Revson would be quicker.
3: Um yeah, I mean he he, he probably wouldn't have won the world championship had Von Trips not crashed at Monza. Mm. I think if you look at the way it worked out uh, or could, would have worked out, Von Tripps was leading um, the World Championship when they got to Monza, um, but hadn't qualified terribly well, which may have contributed to the way he had the accident. But um, Von Trips was certainly the favourite to win the World Championship. Uh, and both of them were very experienced drivers. Um, they had, a, as you've said, Kevin, a huge car advantage over everybody else uh, that year. Um, I remember seeing him at Aintree in the eighty two hundred in 62, and he was poor, but didn't get passed by um, his uh, young um, number two, Be- Giancarlo Bagetti. He was no quicker than Bagetti In the Cooper, when he drove in 64, uh, he was hopelessly off the pace. R- really, you know, you could never, uh, other than when he had a big car disadvantage, in Peter Revson's case, in his first season, in Formula one. You could never say that about Peter Revson. He was never so off the pace. Phil Hill was... But if you read about him, he'll 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 recorded the saying that the car was rubbish, the engine was rubbish. It was just a, um, something that wasn't uh, at all good. But his results were appalling um, in, in 1964. And Bruce McLaren was doing okay, not wonderfully, but okay with Cooper. Um, so I I, I can't. Not knocking him as a sports car driver, but we're not assessing him as a sports
2: car driver. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with any any of that in terms of Phil Hill. It's more it's more about the the rating of Revson. I think that's the. I, I just don't feel like there's enough. There's really enough data to stick him ahead on the basis of a couple of wins in in Formula. although I appreciate that Phil only had three. Uh, yeah, one of those was a was a race where
3: most well, exactly. of the teams them
2: boycotted them anyway. So.
3: Yeah, I mean, that, that, that was a race that was tailor-made for Ferrari, wasn't it? Let's move on to number
1: two on Kev's list, and it is Dan Gurney, considered one of the best Formula One drivers not to win a world title, let alone an American non-title winner. Uh, Gurney was a prolific race winner across motorsport categories, including uh, the victory at Le Mans in 1967. He started 86 Formula One World Championship races between 1959 and 1970, winning four titles. So, Kev, why is Gurney
2: at number two? Oh, Gurney was mega. I mean, I think we're, we're these these top two. I feel are quite a you know, way ahead of the rest. Um, and I think in terms of raw pace, you might argue that Gurney should be one. Um, and uh, yeah, so he won four Grand Prix, World Championship Grand Prix, but he should have won many more. Um, he, uh, he he led the the Brabham team, uh, having already taken Porsches first and uh, so far only World Championship Grand Prix winners constructor. And it was quite clear that he led the line. And when you think that his teammate was team founder and already double world champion, Jack Bradham, uh Yeah, I think that, that says a lot. You know, Gurney was famously the one that, that Jim Clark is supposed to have, have feared the most. Uh, uh, and indeed, Gurney did force him into a, uh, a mistake at the Race of Champions in 1965. A rare Clark error. And uh, if you read um, Jack Bram's autobiography, he's, he's kind of considering almost retirement uh, June 1965 mm-hmm. because he's got a team leader and he can focus on running the team. He had a good feeling about the Repco pro- program that he's putting together for the new three-litre era. If Dan Gurney at that point stays at Brabham, I think he's a double world champion because he wins – sixty you know, Jack won 66 and Dan was, I would suggest, better than uh, better than Jack. Um, although not as you know, unfortunate, I think, as his, one of his things about his career. And I think he probably wins 67 as well when Denny Holm uh, is world champion. But instead, he goes off and does his own Eagle project, which in terms of a career move is terrible, but in terms of um, kind of call ratio, it uh, kind of scores quite highly because the Eagle is still now regarded as one of those kind of best-looking F1 cars, fondly remembered. He won the 1967 Belgian Grand Prix at a record, uh, yeah, record speed. And he was kind of, in terms of pace, the closest challenger to the Lotus 49 when that came on stream. And okay, that was only ever really beaten when it didn't work and broke down. Um, but yeah, I, I, Darren Gurney, just in F1, I think he was he was fantastic and he was much better than his than his record shows.
3: Mm, I, I don't know that he was much better than his record shows. I, I, there's no argument about him being second uh, and... By now, anybody listening will have worked out who's going to be first, but um, there's no argument about about that either. But uh, I I think that Dan Gurney is viewed too often through rose-tinted spectacles. Um, Because there was a dearth of of top-quality Formula One drivers from America, he gets rather more focus than perhaps is merited on his performance. I mean, yes, you made the point, Kevin, that Jack Brabham was easing off in the 1965 season. Um, but Dan Gurney had a reputation for fiddling with his cars. He always wanted to make it better, but quite often it didn't make it better. Um, he occasionally broke cars. His best Formula One season was in that dumpy Porsche uh, in 1961 when he finished second in the World Championship um uh and, and it was a good solid season he made a considerable impact when he arrived in formula one in Ferrari in, in driving for Ferrari in 1959 but he wasn't as quick as Tony Brooks who uh was in, in, in effectively a team leader but he, he did make a strong impact so I'm not saying he shouldn't be second absolutely he should be second but uh, to say he's overrated is, is ridiculous and patronizing but I don't think he is quite as good as he's sometimes talked up to be. I think his results are just about fair for what he was capable of.
2: I I think the well, the Ferrari thing, I, I think you would expect Tony Brooks, who I think he's underrated. <laughs> um and we should uh, we should probably do a podcast about him one day as well. But um I don't think you would expect a you know rookie to come in and you know, Brooks was really proper in nineteen fifty nine, so I would expect him to, to, to be quicker than a, than a promising newcomer really at that stage. On the fiddling point, yeah, I think that's that, that is probably fair. In that he lost races uh, because of fiddling, but then there was all there were also plenty of races, particularly at Brabham, when uh, both he and Jack Brabham lost results through no fault of their own. They had problems with Climax engines, which weren't really anything to do with with uh, with Dan. So if you look at 1964, you know he should have had a lot more, um, you know, a lot more points on the board. Okay, I know that the race that he did end up winning was a little bit fortunate. Uh that well, both of them, but then of course he'd lost the Belgian Grand Prix when he he dominated that race, so I think there were more points left than that he got uh, and the Eagle was obviously pretty unreliable as well um but he has to take more of that on i guess as responsibility because it was his team um and of course, if we're bringing in up if we are bringing in a wider wider career point, then you know, he did win in almost everything that he that he stepped into um and i know that he was he was quite an inspiration to the first driver on this list um so yeah i i, I think we're agreed on number 2 but perhaps i'm a bigger fan of gurney's than well than
3: uh, Well, not detracting i'm trying to put him into perspective yeah you know, having seen quite a lot of his races um I, I just don't think he has been sold short i think he 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 is about in terms in terms of american drivers yes second clearly um second Grand Prix driver, second best Grand Prix driver. It, it, the overall scheme of things, whether it's sports car racing or whether it's indie car racing or whether it's um, Formula One, I, I think it's about right where he is.
2: Where would you put him compared to Surtees, Graham Hill?
3: No, it, yeah, well, the, the, there was the four of them, weren't there? Clark, Surtees, um, Hill and Gurney. Yes. Um, Clark was the one above the other three. Um, but I, I think Graham Hill, there's a lot more to be said, in my view, for Graham Hill than there is for Dan Gurney as, as a, a complete Formula One driver. Um, I, I think, talk about Tony Brooks being underrated, so is Graham Hill, too often underrated.
2: That's probably partly because he hung around too long and had lots of years at the end of his career, perhaps. Uh,
3: anyway. <laughs> well, we're agreed on, I think this is the first one we're actually agreed on, isn't it? Second. Yes. <laughs> and first.
1: As Ian alluded to earlier, there's no prizes for guessing who's number one on both Kev's list and Ian's list and number one it's Mario Andretti as Kev says in his feature for autosport.com which is where you can read the full top 10 rundown of uh, top 10 American F1 drivers it's one of motorsports legends prolific in other categories but in F1 terms he started 118 world championship races winning 12 of them taking 18 poles, and of course famously the 1978 world title so Kev I mean it almost seems silly art saying why but why Andretti at number one well, I mean,
2: just on one basic level, the level of achievement is, you know, a long way ahead of anyone else on the list, isn't it? But um, I guess highlights, you know, he was on poll for his first, you know, first Grand Prix. Uh, and Colin Chapman is alleged to have said, oh, you know, he found the new, the new Jimmy, which perhaps is a bit, was a bit strong. But, um, you know, certainly he's, he, yeah, we we did a Lotus list. Uh, yeah. And Mario, Mario was up, was up, uh, up behind, behind Clark. Um uh, and then yeah I'm rebuilding with Lotus apparently it was a breakfast meeting I think at Long Beach Ian might remember between Colin Chapman and, and Mario and Mario and the Pat Parnelli project was falling to pieces mm. and Lotus had just had the terrible 75 season hadn't been able to replace the Lotus 72 yet and they sort of agreed to you know go all in together and and, re- and build something together and, and that is what they did you know the the um yeah the 1976 campaign wasn't great but it was probably better than 75 culminating in that wet weather win when everyone was distracted by the James Hunt nicolada championship fight uh, and then 1977 um andretti in and the Lotus 78 the first ground effects car they are the fastest combination of the season but they have far, they have a few too many development uh, developmental costs with DFV engine failures which effectively loses them the championship uh, and then they they have it all together bring it all together in in 1978, with a low to 79, and he's world champion. Um, so 12, uh, yeah, as it 12 wins puts him well ahead of anyone else on this list. So uh, I think pretty nailed on number one.
3: Yeah, well, there's no argument really, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, Mario Andretti is a standout uh, driver. Of course, originally from Italy, so uh, he, he's Italian American, um, and not just the family, but he. Uh, was born and brought up and grew up and first saw Ascari racing at Monza uh, before they emigrated to the USA. Um, But he is associated these days with being an American driver. Um, His pole position, you've already alluded to, his pole position in his first race, uh, the American Grand Prix of Watkins Glen, an incredible achievement, given that cars were much more evenly matched in those days. I know the Lotus 49 was one of the better cars, but nonetheless... That um, it was an amazing achievement um, to get that pole position. Um, and so it goes on in his um, Formula One career. At times, I think, because people say, well, of course, in 1978, Ronnie Peterson let him win all the Grand Prix. That's not quite fair. Um, Ronnie Peterson was the quicker driver, yes, probably, because Ronnie Peterson was a superstar. Um, uh, and uh, he did, in some races, look as though he was not as quick as uh, go, going more quickly or capable of going more quickly than Mario but Mario Andretti was the team leader he'd helped to develop the car I think he sometimes isn't given enough credit for the amount of um, testing and uh, racing input he put into the Lotus, development of the Lotus 78 and then the Lotus 79 he had a lot a part to play in that so to use the dreadful cliche I think he ticks so many boxes um, that that he is the well, Dan Gurney, yes, probably, but certainly Mario Algetti is one of the all-time greats uh, in Formula One, let alone anything else. But I don't think he gets the credit um, that he deserves for it. Whereas I'm saying Dan Gurney is sometimes perceived through rose roasted into spectacles, I would say that Mario is sometimes not given the credit he deserves for what he did in Formula One.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair. Almost because he was so successful everywhere else, multiple yes. multiple IndyCar champion, obviously World Sports Car Championship winner as well, race winner, Um and Indy five hundred winner. They didn't quite get them on twenty four hours, but also, of course, he put it on pole in his guest drive at Monza in 1982 yes. when he was sort of yeah. brought over by Ferrari who were having a very tumultuous, difficult <laughs> season. Uh, and he stuck it on, on pole in front of Ferrari's home fans, which I think must have been pretty sensational. And actually, he thinks that he could have won that race had he not had a, a sticking throttle um, which which hampered his fight against the Renos. Um, so yeah, I think we're I think we're pretty uh, pretty <laughs> in agreement. At, at and the
3: other uh, thing you say about the other thing I think you say about Mario it's probably something to do with his uh, earlier days in oval racing and dirt track racing is, is that he was a, a proper racer. That there was he never whinged about anything. If if there was something not right with the car, okay, there was something not right with the car, and he explained it, but he wouldn't moan about it. Um, he just got on and raced. Um, he didn't make a song and dance about that. Um, it was. It was just. Well, what was that race at um, Sandvort, wasn't there when he overtook um, round the outside? Or there was oh, a bit a...
2: James Hunt, when they ended yeah. up. Cra- yeah, you don't yeah. overtake. You don't overtake round the outside. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. You do.
3: <laughs> in my sort of racing, yeah, where I come from, whatever it was, yeah. No, I mean, Mario Andretti, definitely number one. Um, but bear just... in mind, he was half Italian.
2: Yeah. <laughs> just before um, Alex ties ties it up, I thought it would probably be worth just running down Ian's list because we give the impression that there's quite a big uh, disparity. But I don't think there is really. It's usually it's there's a couple of people that throw the order out, but the overall order is the same. So Ian's list is uh, from 10, Donahue, Fulmer, Cheever, Shell, Gregory, Ginther, Hill. Revson, Gurney, Andretti so I'd say that um, if we accept that argument about ninth and 10th could have been any one of a number of drivers I'd say the main points of of difference really are Eddie Cheever um, being uh, in Ian's list behind Shell and Gregory and then the the never ending, because we could go on about it some more but we won't debate about where Peter Revson should slot in but apart from those two I think the order is actually uh, pretty similar
3: Phew, that ought to well, be a really, actually. It, or, or either one of us doesn't know what he's talking about. But yes, if we're more or less the same, 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 but, same cast, isn't it? More or less. It's just uh, yeah, a, exactly,
1: yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Wow.
1: Well, we have, we've covered a lot of ground in this podcast. I think we should wrap <laughs> it up there. Ian, Kev, yeah, thank you very much uh, for joining me. Thanks to all the listeners for listening along. And we'll be back soon with a new episode of the Autosport Podcast.
0: of a winner this is it this is the year enough
2: dreaming about growing my business online it's time to get serious about selling in my style as big as i want to grow because there's nothing i can't do it's time to get shopify
0: and take my business to the next level
2: whoa someone's ready to take on the new year oh oh i thought i was talking to myself there
0: But heck yeah, 2023 is my year. That's not your average resolution. That's a revolution. It's It's a a New New Year's Year's revolution. revolution.